I don't know how many of you were here for Neil's talk, but he talked about trying on heels and he doesn't understand why women wear heels. And then he comes down and I go up to see him, meet him, and here is, there he is with his spick and span suit and he's wear, wearing Vibrams. I'm like, you know, now I think he actually is onto something but because weak knees, and weak knees and high heels don't quite go together. <laughs> so maybe next time I'll go for flats. <laughs> to start out with, I just want to say hi to my 11-year-old daughter who's here. She's going to be hearing something about her mother for the first time and hopefully it won't scar her too much. <laughs> if you think back to your freshman year in college, I'm sure you can recall feeling a sense of wonder and anxiety. So whether you're moving from Arkansas to New York City or from Malaysia to the United States, there is an inevitable learning curve. As young adults, we are eager to discover our boundaries and ourselves. We tussle with things like belonging, self-esteem, self-worth. We yearn to connect. Luckily, universities seem to know this uncanny fact and have built-in systems to make the transitions easier. Some universities mandate that all freshmen, resident or non-resident, stay in the dorm to foster the sense of belonging. International students have entire departments there to ensure their smooth transition. NC State has Alexandra Hall and Carroll Hall. Carroll Hall's tagline actually states, to, to ensure international undergraduate students in their acclimation and exposure to US culture and English language. That's pretty specific, don't you think? I mention the above because I want to point out the fact that emergent adults benefit enormously from peer interaction from peer camaraderie. I mean, if there's an infrastructure in universities to facilitate it, it surely must be more than just a fad. And being deprived of such peer relations is detrimental to the young adult, as we shall see in my case. NC State does not mandate that freshmen stay in dorms. I, I'm not sure how it is now, but 20 years ago it didn't. So while most freshmen move out of the house to go into college, I did just the opposite. I moved from India, where I finished my K through 12, to the United States to stay with my mother and infant sister. My mother barely spoke English, and my stepfather traveled extensively. So I became their voice to the world a world that was as alien to me as it was to them. Spring of 1992 was my first semester here at NC State and my first experience of winter weather. I commuted to school using a city bus because we didn't have a car and the Wolf Line didn't go that far. My student classification was that of a resident because my parents lived in Raleigh. But in reality, I felt far from being a local. In fact, I had just gotten off the boat. 
I was not an international student, so I didn't have access to Carroll Hall or any of the built-in systems to help me acclimate to the school system here or the US culture. Perhaps starting in the spring semester also precluded me from the freshman fall orientation. I didn't know anyone, and I didn't know what I didn't know. I fell through the cracks. I became an anomaly on the fringes of campus civilization. Now, none of these could have been avoided. It's just the way things panned out. But what could have been avoided were the limitations placed on me by my orthodox family, which prevented me from seeking the peer relations that I needed and wanted. My familial culture stood in stark contrast to the societal culture. My parents meant well. They were merely functioning within the cultural parameters of what they were familiar with. Nevertheless, the parameters followed to a T did not translate well into the culture, into the school culture. I, during that time, I had a curfew of 6 p.m. It became 7 p.m. during my senior year. I had no way of uh, meeting people or connecting with people because I stayed home in the evenings and the weekends with no one to talk to but my mother, who herself was at wit's end being cooped up in the apartment day and night and my infant sister, whose crying spree started at 1 a.m., like she was on a timer. My lifeline during that time was a dear friend of mine, Arun Babu. He became my window to the world. Luckily, he knew the ins and outs. One evening, um, feeling a bit lonely after my parents and I had retired to our rooms, I called him up to chat. And I was talking away at a mile a minute, and all he said was, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, Arun not speaking is like saying Adele can't sing. It simply does not happen. So naturally, I was a bit concerned. I asked him, I said, is everything OK? What's wrong? And he's like, no, everything's OK. And then I heard a meowing sound, meow, you know. So I said, what's that I hear? Is uh, Lori there? Lori is a sister-in-law, and she was um, redoing the wallpaper, and she often brought a kitten. So he said, no, Lori isn't here, and I got to go. I'm like, fine. So the next day, I come back from school. I walk into my room and see that my phone is gone. I ask my mom what happened to my phone, and she says it's been confiscated. That's when I realized that my parents were eavesdropping on my conversation the previous night using the other line, landlines, it's the same. And the kitten, the meow meow, was actually my infant sister. <laughs> so there I was, a 6 p.m. curfew, a confiscated phone, and the only way I could talk to a classmate or a friend was from the kitchen. I was 20 years old. I might as well have been 12. So school became a form of escapism for me. I consistently skipped classes. 
because those precious few hours became my only time I could interact with the world. Naturally, I didn't do too well and missed out on many opportunities, educational and otherwise. And understandably, my parents weren't too thrilled with my performance and receiving just an undergraduate degree was not good enough, so much so that none of them were present in the country during my graduation. I had my certificate mailed to me. I applied to a few graduate schools after that, and I didn't get in. So I started working, got married, had kids, you know, the perfunctory things. A decade passed by. I worked at various sectors and disciplines, constantly switching jobs. In the eyes of my folks, I was just as underperforming in every sector of my life, while I still tussled with the freshman traits of belonging and worth. In 2004, I had a nervous breakdown. When you hit rock bottom, you only have two choices, right? You disappear or you climb up. Since I'm no magician, I decided to climb up. I applied to two graduate classes in the Department of Education as a continuing ed student. I wanted to test the waters. And I completely sent my system into a state of shock when I did well. Who knew? So I got bold and applied to the master's program I got in. And I started working as a grad student part-time during that time at uh, the UPA, uh, University Planning and Analysis. One day, when everybody seemed to be away from their desks, the phone rang off the hook. It would not stop. I don't know what it is with phones and me. So finally, it got redirected to the main number, and I picked it up. Karen, said the voice. Karen Helm is the director of UPA. I said, no, she's not at her desk, but I can take a message. Who's this, said the voice. Um, I'm just a graduate student. There was a pause. One Mississippi, two Mississippi. Tell Karen to call the provost's office when she gets back. And you are not just a graduate student. You have come a long way. And he hung up. I don't recall how long I stared at the phone. Silent tears just streaming down my face. That gave me the impetus to apply for the doctorate program. And being admitted into it was my second lifeline. Looking back, these years, while tough, have provided a rich landscape to perceive patterns, to evaluate. If we are to make connections, we need an anchoring of sorts. And most often than not, familial culture becomes the primary vantage point for any individual. In my case, the rigid boundaries lent a forced pause, allowing me to question the state of things, the way of life, or the world at large. I became interested anew in the Indian culture and started looking at practices, um, 
like I was looking at them for the first time, like outside in. It was amazing how the same thing can be construed in so many different ways, and people somehow come up with evidence to back it up, each one of them. Emergent adults need to test their metal. How can they blossom into responsible adults if they are never given the chance to, to know what they're made of, to trust their own judgments? Uh, so, for example, if we plant a sapling under a big tree because we want to protect it from the wind gusts, we may achieve what we set out to do, but at what cost? Do we not realize that the tree is also obscuring the sunlight as well as using the water that's meant for the sapling? When a culture does not allow such simple things for a person to come into one's own, it cripples, tearing down what it sets out to build, curbing what it is trying to empower, sequestering what it intends to embolden. A tree knows not what it does, but we do. Awareness is key. So please, let's not repeat history. Thank you.